You know, as you get to the end of the year, like we are now, uh, you see all these lists about uh, the most whatever that happened in the, the year, right? Uh, it could be any number of things. But uh, I looked up, uh, for the purpose of this message, the most popular baby names in 2022. I'm not going to read all of them, just a few of them. Uh, starting with the girls, the top five most popular names were Olivia, Emma, Amelia, Ava, and Sophia. Maybe you have somebody in your family that's had a baby, or maybe you have named one of your children one of those names. For the boys, it was Liam, Noah, Oliver, Elijah, and Mateo. So those are the top five names, boys and girls, for 2022, which leads, in my mind at least, to the question, what's in a name? You know, we choose names for all sorts of reasons, sometimes for the meaning behind it, sometimes because we like the name for our children, sometimes it's a family name, a biblical name. There are all sorts of reasons why we choose names. Some cultures still place great importance on the meaning of names and choose those names very carefully. But what's in a name? Well, the names that we choose may have a reason and This morning, I want to ask the question, what about the name of Jesus? What's in that name? What does it represent? What does it mean? What comes to mind when you think of the name of Jesus? Savior, Lord, hopefully that's what comes to mind, that he is your Savior and Lord, that you have a personal relationship with him. Emmanuel, who is God with us, King of kings, Lord of lords. There are so many things, so many truths, so many Uh, characteristics, attributes that can come to mind when we think of the name of Jesus. Now, last week we looked at the first part of Philippians chapter 2, and we talked about the incarnation of Christ, how he, he humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in humble circumstances. He lived the life of a servant, and he died as a servant to provide the sacrifice for our sins. And this week we're going to move into the last part of the chapter in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to see what happens next. Everything Jesus did, he did because he wanted to. No one forced him to come to this earth. No one forced him to take the form of a servant. He did it willfully, voluntarily, even to the point to where he voluntarily laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. No one humbled him. He became man on his own. Humility is the key to what Paul is focusing on in the first part of the chapter. And it is the key to what he's calling on the Philippians to practice, to humble themselves, to put others' needs above their own. And here's an important truth that I believe we need to to wrap our minds around before we move on in this chapter. Jesus' self-humiliation was followed by his exaltation. He humbled himself willfully on his own, but then we will see that he was exalted highly above all others. God the Father exalted Christ, and in a similar fashion, we're not the same as Christ, but we are promised that if we will humble ourselves as his followers, that we too will be exalted. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In Philippians 
2, verses 5 through 11, this isn't just a picture of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. It's also an illustration of a divine principle that brings blessing to those who follow Christ obediently and follow in his footsteps. By God's grace, just as we are humbled with Christ and in Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ and in Christ. In verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2, the focus shifts from his humility to his exaltation. The central truth of the the passage is, yes, he was humbled, we need to be humbled, but then it focuses in these last few verses, or these next few verses, on the central reality, the truth that Jesus is highly exalted. And, and, and his sovereign lordship is the focus here. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in verses 9 through 11... Paul presents aspects of God's exaltation of Jesus. And in doing so, we, as we look at these, we will know how we are to respond to him as, yes, the humble servant who gave his life, but now the exalted Savior who is high above all else. First, the first aspect is that, and it all centers on his name, the name of Jesus commands authority. The name of Jesus commands authority. Represents a lot of truths, his attributes. But there's no doubt from this passage, from what we know about Christ in Scripture, his name commands authority. Look at verse 9 again. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That phrase, for this reason, we we. Our, our minds should go back to verse to the previous verses, 6 through 8, where we have learned about his humiliation, willfully humbling himself, and, and giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. That should be on our minds because the road to exaltation for Christ in this sense, in this instance, and for us as his followers, the road to exaltation is humiliation. We have to humble ourselves. It was true for Jesus, and if it's true for Jesus, you better believe it's true for for us, his followers. But the result of this humiliation that he submitted himself to was that he was highly exalted, Paul says. You could call this super-exaltation. More exalted than any other. He is highly exalted. God lifted him up in the most dramatic, magnificent way possible. And he was exalted above all. He, he lifted him up through the resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, and now as an intercessor uh, between us and God. He was resurrected from the dead. That's the great truth of salvation is that not only did he give his life, but he has now been raised from the dead and he is alive so that we too can have victory over death and eternal life. He ascended to the Father. Jesus has gone back 
to heaven. Yes, he will return again, but he has gone back to the Father. And he will return in the same way that he ascended. In Acts chapter 1, the angels told the apostles, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So he ascended, he was raised from the dead, and he will return. He was given all authority, Paul tells us, in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18, he said that about himself. Jesus' resurrection and ascension were capped by his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. From heaven, Jesus reigns forever. Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, because God the Father put all things in submission and subjection under his feet. The great message of Christ's exaltation is that he reigns. He reigns today. He reigns forevermore. He is also called a high priest, continually interceding for believers. Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In Philippians 2, 9. The verse we just read, Paul pulls out all the stops. He uses a word found nowhere else in the New Testament. As he says, literally, therefore God super exalted Jesus Christ. Christ received the highest exaltation possible. And this is incomprehensible for us. It's in a class all by itself. We can't fully understand it. We will see it in person one day. But he is highly exalted above all else. Something we need to be reminded of here. Included in Jesus' authority is his right to judge. He reigns and he is the righteous judge. John 5, 22 and 23. The Father, in fact, judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. So that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Another truth. One day... We will all stand before the throne of God in judgment. Those who have trusted Jesus will pass through that judgment. But those who have not will have no hope. We will stand before this righteous, holy judge one day. The group that you're in then depends on what you do with Jesus now. Have you received him as Lord? Are you waiting? Are you refusing? You know... If I had a glass of milk, for example, up here, some of you like milk, some of you don't. Some of you would, if I offered it, would, would be anxious to take a drink of that milk. But then what if I told you that that glass of milk was about six months out of date? That I was waiting for just the right moment to drink that milk. And not only that, maybe I left it out for a few nights, just out in lukewarm temperature. How many of you would be eager to drink that milk then? (laughs) It probably would be a solid by that point, I'm guessing. There are some things that you just shouldn't wait to do, right? Some things it's better to wait, like opening your presents after worship on Christmas morning. (laughs) My kids do not agree with that. But some things you shouldn't wait for, like drinking milk, milk six months after it's out of date. Well, guess what? 
today, if you haven't received Christ, you have the opportunity right now. And if there was ever anything that you should not wait to do, it's that. He's giving you the opportunity today to receive him. Because we will all stand before him in judgment. And by then it will be too late. It will, the, the opportunity will have passed. Accept Jesus now. Jesus fulfilled his purpose on earth. And he did what God sent him here to do. The result, he was given the name which is above every name. You know, Jesus has a lot of names. Emmanuel, just to name a few. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, the Door, the Chief Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Word, the Light, the Lamb, the Bread of Life, the Rock, the Bridegroom, the Alpha, and the Omega. This new name that Paul emphasizes here shows us his status above all other beings. And it emphasizes the unique privileges that we just mentioned about who he is as Savior and Lord and who he is in this exalted state in response to his redemptive work. What that does, not only in his exalted state, but for us as those who have the opportunity to follow him. So what's in the name? Well, verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, what name is Paul talking about? Well, you fast forward to verse 11, you don't have to wait very long. The name Lord, God's own name here. It's the New Testament, the Greek version of the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. There's no doubt what's being said here. It's the personal name of God, of the God of Israel. You know, Lord is a title of majesty, authority, honor, sovereignty. So what does it really mean? Giving Jesus the name Lord, the name Yahweh, is the ultimate of all honors because God, as he says in Isaiah chapter 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. It's no one else's name. It is Yahweh's name. The one and only true God. The awesome covenant name of the God of Israel. The name that is above every name. There is no doubt what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is God. That that name Lord means all that I just said. That he is not only a member of the Trinity, he is, but in, in some grand mystery that we can't fully comprehend, he is also the same God of the Old Testament. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are separate but one. He is God, the name that is above all names. Jesus is Lord over everyone else and has the right to be obeyed as master. That's the implication, and that's exactly the point, isn't it, that Paul's making here. Will everyone recognize that right? Well, as we see in verses 10 and 11 in our second, the second aspect that Paul points us to, the name of Jesus demands a response. So will everyone respond? Jesus is given the name above every name, and as in verses 10 and 11, we see the result is that every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. That name Lord was a common term of respect. And a lot of people called him Lord and just basically were saying that they respected him as a teacher and the work that he was doing. When people said the name Lord, they didn't necessarily mean what Paul is saying here. They, they were just showing respect. There were some, certainly, that said Lord and meant it that way, but not everybody. Jesus himself made clear, even calling him Lord as an acknowledgement of his deity is not necessarily evidence of a saving relationship with him. Matthew 7, 21 and 22, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Evidence of a relationship with Christ. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? But Jesus makes it clear that not everyone who even recognizes, not just showing respect, but recognizing his, his deity, not everyone who does that has made a decision to accept Christ as Lord and to follow him and to show their faith, not earn their faith, but show their faith. By obedience, there are some who will call him Lord, but will not enter into his kingdom. However, this title that Paul uses here as Lord in verse 11, it's referring to Jesus' deity, his, his, his sovereignty, his exalted authority, all that we just talked about. It's a divine title carrying with it divine rights, honors, privileges, everything that comes with it in him being God. All that that represents. And ultimately, whether whether by choice or by force, every creature in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, will recognize him as Lord and will bow their knee to him as Lord. Every knee will bow. Just as Isaiah prophesied 700 years before this, Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance. And and what Paul is saying here, he's echoing Isaiah. And he's teaching us that Jesus is the sovereign God of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one day every knee will bow to him as Lord. There are three groups of people represented in in verse 10. Those in heaven, the holy angels, saints that are redeemed who, who are already there from all ages. There are those on the earth. Both the redeemed on the earth, those who are saved, and those who are not will bow. The redeemed will continue their worship of him that they began when they accepted him as Lord. Those who have not accepted him, and uh, although unwillingly and out of fear, they too will bow to him as Lord. But it will not result in salvation. And then there are those under the earth, the fallen angels, the unredeemed dead who are awaiting final judgment and eternal punishment. These will also include, as we see in 1 Peter 3, 19, the spirits now in prison, demons already bound in the abyss. Now, regardless of your spiritual state, regardless of your will, however rigid, however proud, however stubborn you may be, one day you will bow your knee to Jesus 
The only question is, will you do it willfully now and then, or will you do it by force then? That's the question. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Paul says, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every human and angelic being will declare the lordship of Jesus Christ. Soon every tongue of every rational being in all creation will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every believing heart will cry at the top of its lungs in voice and song with the angels. And we will cry out that he is Lord. But every unbelieving heart will confess he is Lord as well. But again, it will not result in salvation for those who do it by force. Even Satan will do it, though. He will cry out that he is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. Every fallen spirit, legion upon legion, will do it. Caiaphas will confess Jesus is Lord. Herod, Pilate will confess Jesus is Lord. Every evil dictator that... We have seen in our history, we'll do it. We'll confess that Jesus is Lord. Even the worst of the worst will confess that Jesus is Lord. But here's the thing. This confession is an open public declaration that Jesus is Lord. But for these who are unbelievers, it will not result in salvation. Before death... Or the Lord's return, we have this promise, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But Paul makes clear in this same letter, in the day of judgment, that confessing will not change the spiritual status of those making this confession on this day, when every knee will bow. Huge difference, right? For the believer... This day will be a glorious time, a time of celebration, a time to confess Jesus as Lord as they prepare or are either in heaven with him or prepared to enter. But for the unbeliever, it's a much different atmosphere, a much different attitude. It's confession that Jesus is Lord followed by judgment by that sovereign Lord that will result in eternity separated from him in heaven. So why not? Why don't these individuals, why aren't they saved? Well, for one thing, you can't force salvation. God's not going to force you to follow him. And this is, for those who are unbelievers, a forced declaration. They have no choice but to declare him as Lord. And he's not going to do that. And his sovereign plan, he doesn't force that on us. It's a gift that we have to receive. And also, acknowledging Jesus as Lord must include Submission, as we've talked about earlier in this chapter, and obedience. I mean, they are obeying because they have no other choice, but they have not willfully submitted themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord. They haven't voluntarily given their hearts to him, invited him into their lives as Lord and Savior. The concept of Jesus as Lord is crystal clear in the Bible. In the New Testament, he's called Lord some 747 times. In the book of Acts, he's referred to as Savior only twice, but as Lord 92 times. The Lordship of Christ is the very essence of Christianity and the necessary confession, voluntary confession of anyone who wants to follow him and receive the salvation that he offers. The truth is, Jesus is Savior so that he may be Lord, and he will not save 
those for whom he cannot be Lord. Now, I just want to illustrate this concept of lordship for you. It's the concept of obedience to Christ. When we submit ourselves to Christ, when we voluntarily do that, we are saying, my life is yours. You paid for it with your sacrifice. My life is yours to do with as you please, which means he directs our lives. He He gives us his will for our lives, and we follow it in obedience. And it's kind of like this water. I got a pitcher of water here. And I can simply pour this water in my hand and let it go wherever it wants. And yes, it's cold, in case you were wondering. Or I can direct the water, right? I can direct it that way. I can direct it that way. I can direct it the front. My hand determines the course of the water. And this... in Just a simple illustration shows us what it means to allow our lives, the water representing our lives, to be directed by Jesus. I can either just let my life go wherever I choose or whatever happens, happens, or I can submit to Jesus and he can direct my life in whatever way he chooses. Better to make that decision right now. And yes, I remembered a towel this week. Learned my lesson last week. Better to make that decision now, to voluntarily submit and say, Jesus, I'm yours. You do with me as you please, than to be forced to on that day that Paul is talking about with no hope of redemption, with no hope of salvation, and certainly no opportunity to experience God's plan for your life. Because I guarantee you, it won't always be easy, but God's plan for your life is far better then you or anyone else could come up for you because he is God. He is perfect. He is sovereign. And he does have a plan for your life, and he wants you to experience that. Profession of faith that produces no true obedience to his lordship is worthless. John MacArthur said this. He said, he is Lord, and those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. Everyone who receives him must surrender to his authority. For to say we receive Christ when in fact we reject his right to reign over us, to direct our lives, to tell us where to go, what to do, how to live, he says is utter absurdity. It is a futile attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and take Jesus with the other. What kind of salvation is it if we are still left in bondage to sin, he asks It's not salvation if we're still in bondage to sin. What we believe about Jesus is the most important thing about us. What we do with him now will determine the course of our eternal destiny. Will we follow him? Will we submit? Will we obey? It also determines the course of our lives as we live on this earth. If we obey him and submit, we will follow his path. If we don't, we will follow our path, and it will lead to destruction. Paul wrote this to motivate the Philippian church to do nothing, he says, from empty or uh, from, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, he says, but also the interests of others. So we need to understand The goal of this passage, yes, is to recognize who Jesus was and is and will be. But he's motivating the Philippian church to make a shift in their thinking and their acting 
and they're living. They're living and thinking of themselves above others. And he's directing them to have what we're going to call others' directedness. And I think this is a great lesson for Christmas. Because not all of us, myself included, and there's nothing wrong with this, are looking forward to the presents that I'm going to get today. Right? We're all thinking about what, either what we already have or what we're going to get. And that's okay. But what Christmas should remind us of is that it's not about us. Christmas is about, first of all, Jesus Christ. The example that he set, the incarnation of Christ, that he came to this earth not for himself, but for the sake of others. Others' directedness. We should be reminded of what Paul is trying to encourage the Philippians to do. To stop thinking about themselves and to put others above themselves. This concept of others' directedness works in every relationship in life. It is the model of the husband-wife relationship. Mutual submission. A husband willing to lay down his life for his wife if necessary. A wife submitting to her husband as the spiritual leader of the home. And them two, both of them submitting to Christ as Lord of their lives. It's the model of the church, as Paul's trying to teach them. If we're all looking out for the needs and interests of others, we will have our needs met. In the marriage relationship, that's true. And in the church relationship, that is true. Because if I'm looking out for your needs and you're looking out for my needs, I won't have to worry about my needs. My needs will be met. Your needs will be met. See, God knew what he was talking about here. He knew what he was doing. Others' directedness is at the heart of the gospel, and it's the heart of our call, the call that God has placed on our lives as his followers. So as we leave here today, as we go home and celebrate or go to family, the houses of our family members and celebrate and enjoy all of the food and all of the presents, let's leave here with the same mind as Christ, as Paul challenges the Philippians to have. The heart and mind of humble servants, thinking of others above ourselves, loving others the same way he has us, loving others more than we love ourselves, being willing to lay down our lives for others if necessary, dedicating ourselves to submitting to the Lordship of Christ and following his will for our lives. Let's take a moment in prayer. Father, we thank you for the example. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to submit and the example that you set for us. Willfully coming to this earth and laying down your life. Not forced to, but doing it in obedience to the will of the Father doing it willfully so that we could be free, so that we could be saved, for living a life of humility and service to show us, to set an example for us in how to live. And that same call that you placed on the Philippians through Paul is applicable to us today. It's the same call that we live our lives in humility, with others' directedness, thinking of others above ourselves, loving others with the same love that you have shown us. And I pray that we will live that in obedience each and every day, not just on Christmas, but every day. And Father, I pray that the message of today, of your lordship, of your exaltation, 
would result in the salvation of anyone who has not received you as Lord. That they would take advantage of the opportunity that you are giving them today. That during this time of decision, that they would come forward if necessary and allow me to share with them how to make that most important decision. But as we have this time of decision, Lord, I pray that you would just lead us in how to pray and what to do to respond to your word. May we do it faithfully and in obedience to your call on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?